we're looking at our new series, Stripped Back. I feel like I should just clarify, uh, just for a second, uh, in, case, in case you want to write a strongly worded letter to the elders or something afterwards. That's not that we're going to take the edge off um, the gospel message. We're not going to strip stuff off. It's stripped back. So we're not going to kind of go, do you know what, that, the idea of forgiveness, that makes life really hard, actually, just forgiving people and moving on. This, 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 this journey towards holiness, do you know what I could do without that? I quite like where I'm at. I feel like I'm just about good enough. We're not going to do anything like that. This, this is stripped back. It's stripped back in that Mark recognizes the need for him to be concise with his gospel, the good news about Jesus. Kind of Mark, Mark's kind of got to, he's got a strong incentive to write this book. He's seen, he's seen the awesome works that Jesus has done. He's had this experience where he's, he's seen that and he's seen in Rome his countrymen. So we think that Mark, Mark's a Roman citizen. He maybe not live in Rome, but you know that way where you've got passion and you're a, you're a Roman citizen, so he's got feeling for these people and empathy for these people. And what's going on is in Rome to the Christians is, is horrific. Maybe you've seen some of the old big Saturday afternoon films about Bible times when you see what, what, what happened to the Christians, what they did to the Christians. It was just, it was, it was horrific. So under, under Emperor Nero, it was already bad. But there was, I don't know if you're familiar, I don't know how good your history is, but AD 64, there was the fire of Rome. How good your history, do you know about the fire of Rome? We don't know who started it, we think it might have been Nero. But what happens when there's a big tragedy like this, often is you look to blame a people group. And Nero and the leaders put the blame squarely on the doors of the Christians. It came upon the doors of the Christians, and the Christians... In Rome, AD 64 through, I don't know however many years, I don't know how long this went on, they were killed for sport. They were butchered. So Mark sees this, or Mark knows about this. He's got this awareness of this, and he says, and that's, and so one of the characteristics of Mark is that it's immediate, and it's quick, and it's concise, and it's straight to the point. And I think part of it is because his heart is bleeding for these Christians. He's like, I've seen firsthand the work of Jesus. I've seen this amazing gospel. I need to... I need to get something down on paper and pass it on so other people get it. I had this, um, I had this moment at, I was at a Christian convention, um, the Keswick Convention. It's a brilliant thing, just sort of really awesome uh, Bible teaching, really good Bible teaching. And I'm sat there with my and it's, it's that horrible moment when you get there and you realize that you look like all the other Christians. You ever had that? You ever had that moment where you look around your room and you're like, and this is, this is especially true if you're in leadership like me and you go along to these events where we all come together, the Christians, and you, you're a fashionable once you all look very different. You know, fair play, credit to you. But when, you, when I go to this convention, I look around and everyone's there and we're all doing the same thing and we're all there for the same time. I've got trying to get my cool, cross-legged stance. I've got my iPad out. I'm, trying to, I'm ready to do the God nod. When the, when the guy, you know, these this great teachers get up and say something good, I'm ready, I'm ready to be the first one in with it. Oh, yeah, that's dead right. That's, that's really good. And this guy gets up to speak. So we've had, had like a week long of like brilliant Bible teaching, just good. And I've done lots of God nodding, and I've been encouraged. And then this guy gets up to speak, and he's from Egypt. And he's like, and I've got real empathy for him, because he's a bit like me at times, 
when he's tongue-tied and he's a little bit nervous. And this guy gets up in front of thousands of people and he sort of stutters onto the platform. And I'm a li- if I'm honest, I'm a little bit, man, I've come a long way to listen to a message. I want, you to, I want you to blow my mind. I want to go away learning something new about this passage. And he starts to stutter and he makes his way through some sort of a story. But his, as, as he's talking, I'm listening, he starts to tell the stories of his life back in Egypt. And his reality was that the Christians around him, people he knew, people near him in his church were being beheaded for their faith. That was his reality. And he, the way he talked, even though it was quiet, even though it was kind of nervous, he had, he had a nearness to God. He had, he had a sense of the reality of the gospel that was just compelling. So even though he did what you might say was not technically the best talk of all time, he did a call at the end to ask people if they were interested in thinking about mission. And I've never seen so many people go up to think about mission. It struck me as, as I looked around at people like me wanting to, wanting, coming to this conference, wanting to talk about strategy, wanting to do some God nodding, wanting to write notes on their iPad that if, if, I, could, if I just had half the glimpse of God that this guy had, or if the people around me had had half the glimpse of God, if their reality had brought them to a place where they were leaning on God in a real desperate way, then we could all, all the conference could just go home. We could forget about it all. More than we need anything in this world, we need an encounter with the living God. We need to see the living God. So Mark's going to remind us of two things two things in this, uh, in this little passage. So we're going to hover over, I don't, know if it's, I don't know if you can see that on the screen, we're going to hover over Mark 9, 1 to thir- uh, Mark 1, 9 to 13. He's going to tell us two things. He's going to tell us that we need to remember that our God is an awesome God. He's going to say to these, to these, I mean, I guess Mark's gospel is to all of us, but I think when you read it, you feel like he's got an eye on the Romans that are struggling under persecution. And he's saying to them, I need to get the message to you quick that this God is an awesome God. And he also needs to get the message to them quick that this gospel is still good news because that's not how it feels when all you can think about is if you're going to get thrown to the lions for dinner the next day. Mark's going to remind us, and we're not going to get thrown to the lions, I don't think. But the gospel doesn't always feel like good news, does it? Do you know what I mean? It doesn't always feel like doesn't always think, you don't always think to yourself, this is the best news in the whole world. This, doesn't, this brings joy to my soul. Sometimes you think of the gospel and you think, well, it means I go to church and it means I'm a Christian and it means I do all the things that Christians do. Mark's going to remind us in this passage why the gospel is good news. So read with me, if you would, through, and so we're going to zone in. It's all good, this passage, but we're really going to zone in on Mark 1, 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well 
pleased. Really on trend thing for God to say. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out to the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. So here's what's going to happen at this point. I want, I want us to look for the thread. Mark's, Mark's telling us a story. And at least as I see it, or as the people that I read see it, he's telling us it on a couple of levels. He wants us to think deeply about this passage. You know when you watch a Disney Pixar film? Are you with me? Do you watch, a Dis- do you watch Disney Pixar films? I think, I think some of us do. And, you, and maybe if, if it's like a family film, and it works on a bunch of levels, you can watch the slapstick cartoon on the top level, can't you? You can kind of enjoy it at that level. But there's also levels underneath. There's a bit of blue every now and again, just as much as Dis- Disney Pixar feel like they can get away with. But there's also a deep points to it. So you watch Finding Nemo, and it's just this slapstick cartoon about a fish that bumps into people. You know, it's, it's kind of like that. But also it's about home. It's about hope. It's about parenthood. It works on this deep level. Well, Mark's doing that with us in his gospel. He says, I want you to, I want you to see Jesus. You Christians in Rome struggling under persecution, you're going to need to see Jesus, but I want you to see exactly who he is. You're going to need to see exactly who he, who he is. So you've got this dynamic in this story of Jesus. So they're, at the moment in Rome, they're following a man. They've heard about the man Jesus, they've heard about what he's, what he's teaching, and they're following this man. And so Mark says, I need to show them something more about this man. I need to give them something right now because they've been persecuted. So he tells them something more. One, one. So follow the thread. See if you can follow the thread and see where it's going. He's telling us who Jesus is. He's going to build a bigger picture. So we see the story at the top. He's met John the Baptist, that's all happened. He's getting baptized, that's all happened. He's come out of the water, that's all happened. Look for where he's taking us, somewhere deeper. So he talks about, and let's follow this thread through, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. That's verse one. So he's gonna get us to think about the beginning. Anyone, any of the books of the Bible that you read where it talks about the beginning, you're, you're in creation. So John one, you're in creation. Genesis one, you're in creation. So you're thinking big, Then we've got this moment where there's this interaction. So notice it in the text between, and look who's present. I want you to clock who's here. Who's here in this story? So we're already thinking beginnings. It's the father. The father is pleased. Father's looking down saying, this is good. What's happening is good. The son is there and he is active on the earth. The son's doing something. And the spirit is hovering. So you've got all that. Then you've got a story afterwards about temptation. So Mark's saying on the one hand, this is, Je- this is Jesus, and this is happening, God's with him, but he's also getting you to think, I think more deeply. He's, he's saying to the Romans, if you're going to think about this man, Jesus, you've got to think about Jesus as God, as part of that whole story, and you've got to think about Jesus at creation. So there's like a couple of levels going on to this story. You're thinking about Jesus on one level, but you're also like, man, and I think you're going to need this if you're a Roman Christian. This, is, this, this man is God. This is the guy who's there at the beginning. And you're thinking Father, Son, and Spirit. Read, read what it's like at creation. John 1. John puts it like this. In the beginning was the Word. So we understand the Word is Jesus. It's going to speak creation into being. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's like John's at real pains to say this. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering 
over the waters. Father, Spirit, Son, Jesus, Son, working to create the universe. Jesus reflects on it like this when he prays up to his Father. This gives you a sense of the dynamic and how it works out. Jesus says in his prayer to his Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Do you see how this Father, Spirit, Son, we're, we're doing Trinity stuff here. See how Father, Spirit, Son works? They glorify each other. They honor each other. C.S. Lewis described it, and you've got to be really careful when you do uh, try and describe the tr- Trinity, when you try and do an analogy to describe the Trinity. Don't fall for that trap. Somebody says, you know, give us an illustration that de- defines the Trinity. It's tricky. But C.S. Lewis described it as a dance. So I say, it, I, I say it only really because he said it, and I think we can all trust C.S. Lewis. He described it as a dance. And you, when you think, I think Strictly's just started, and don't think too deeply about Strictly, but you know the idea of a dance where one person just compliments the other person. I guess that's the idea with the dance. You've got this image of Jesus who is part of this story, part of this dance of creation, throwing things into being, creating the earth, and then getting glory from it. And it just goes round and round and round like this. So you're at the story of creation, and you're thinking, God, and you're thinking, this is what makes the world go round, and this is why the world goes round. And then you've got this moment in the story where the humans are invited to share in what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit's doing. It says, doesn't it, in Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. It's more of the Trinity again. Let us make man in our image. What he's saying in this moment, he's saying, go fill the, remember what it says, remember God's instruction, go fill the land, go subdue the land, go, go rule over the land. He's not, just, he's not just giving them jobs to do, he's saying, I want you to share this. This beautiful work that's going on between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I want you to share in this. This is what, this is paradise. I want you to share in this. This is, this is where Mark's taking us. This is what he wants us to think about. Then the story goes on. Maybe you know the story. There is the scene of temptation. Man has been, man has been asked to share in this, in this beautiful thing, this beautiful moment. And we have this word that I'm cautious to use. And I'm looking around. I want everyone to get this. We have this word sin. Sin comes in. The man, the human, or the man and the woman at this point, have this opportunity to share with God the Father, God the Son, in this story. And Satan comes in, and he tempts the man. This is the story. Maybe if, you, maybe if you're half listening kids, you'll know this story. And man fails. I just want to stall us on the power of sin, just for a second, in the story. Kind of think of sin, don't we? As kind of little, little errors. Do you know what I mean? Little little misdemeanors that we do. That's how we think of sin. Sin is the, sin when it comes into the world is the tragedy, is the biggest tragedy that the world's ever faced, sin. And you kind of work your way through it and you think things like pride and greed. And you kind of think, when you describe somebody as that, you say, oh, he's a bit proud, or he's a bit greedy. And you look at it and you go, oh, and I shouldn't just blame the blokes for being proud and greedy. But do you know what I mean? You kind of look at it and you go, well, they're a little bit like this. They're a little bit proud and a little bit greedy. Pride and greed has been the cause of 
all the wars that I can think of, all the poverty, all the famines, little things that we think are little sins are the scourge of the human race. Challenges us to think about what sin is. But that is not this story. That is not the story that Mark's telling. That's the story that he alludes to. That's what, it, that's what we're thinking about in the back of our mind. God is great. Jesus Christ is part of that story, but that story comes to an end with the sin of a man. And it's the story of man ever since, and they can't get it right. Read throughout the Old Testament. It's a tragedy of the Old Testament. God invites people to the dance over and over again. He invites them to join in with this creation story, and the man falls away every time. But that is not this story. In this story, Father, Spirit, and Son move again. It's the same kind of story. The Spirit is present. God the Father looks down on Jesus as he comes out of the water to be baptized, and he says, this is good. And then we move on to the next part of the story where temptation comes. And this time, significantly this time in the story, the man overcomes. This is what Mark, I think, wants the citizens of Rome and every other Christian struggling to hear. The man overcomes temptation. Read with me Mark 1, 12 through 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. He endures. He goes into the wilderness, where, and if you read your Old Testament, anyone that goes into the wilderness, they go in and they get messed up, and they don't come out well. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he endures and he comes through. It's interesting, I think, that he mentions wild animals. I don't think any of the other Gospels talk about wild animals, but in the story, Jesus is there and he endures the wild animals. I guess if you're a Christian in Rome, your faith, a decision for God, you are weighing up. You are weighing up spending an afternoon being thrown into, the, into your lot with the wild animals. This is, this is what your faith is about. You're thinking, am I going to go with God? And do I trust God for this? Or am I, am I, can I do that knowing that the wild animals will, will, will come and eat me up? And what this story tells us is that Jesus is with the wild animals and he overcomes. This is the story of the gospel. At last, in the story of the Bible, reading right through Genesis, right through, a sin problem has been overcome. A man has come that has overcome sin. Satan, in this scene, takes Jesus to the highest point and he shows him all the kingdoms. He shows him all the kingdoms, says you can have all of this. What's that like? What's that like in life when you get, when you get a sniff of the cash? Do you know what I mean? How does that work out for people when somebody gets a sniff of the big inheritance? What does, it, does it bring out the best in people? Do you know when people get rich quick? This is a, these, these stories can be tragic stories when you've got that. And Jesus offered all of this. Satan says, you can have all of this. He overcomes for us. When they tell lie after lie after lie about Jesus. What's that, what's that like for you when, when people tell lies about you? You know, you know, 
the Facebook chat, schoolyard chat, whatever it is, people, people tell lies about you. How hard is it just to go, okay, that's all good? You don't let that happen, do you? You think, I've got to get that back. They told lie after lie after lie about Jesus, and he overcomes. When his closest friends abandon him, he should be filled with hatred like any other human being. He should be angry. He should be annoyed. He should lose it at this point. You know, when all the disciples run away, but he forgives them all. He overcomes. When the people strip him and beat him up and take his pride away, when he's before Pilate and they're poking out his beard and they're punching him, he doesn't open his mouth. He overcomes hate. He overcomes pride. He overcomes everything. Even when they take him and they string him up on the cross and they bash nails into his hands and they kill him, he still gets out of the tomb and walks away. This is the story of the gospel. This man overcomes. You're reading that story. Maybe you're cowering in the little room in the, in the city of Rome and you're wondering about your faith and you're wondering where to go with it and you read the story of Jesus and you see at every level that he overcomes. You realize that Jesus is more than just wisdom, humility and magic tricks. This is God. You realize that the gospel is more than just is this beautiful world created by God. It's this dance made for us to join in and this this, this, this sort of paradise that we've thought about, Father, Son, and Spirit, was shut off. And there's a way being made back because of Jesus. This is where our faith is. Because he overcomes, we can overcome. That's for the gospel story. I want to finish off. There's this lovely little vignette story at the end where, where Jesus... The guy that we've thought of that is, is, the, is the son of the Trinity, that was at the start of creation through stars into being, that is the hope for the gospel, wanders over towards a couple of guys fishing. I want to pick up just three real simple points about, about what the gospel is and why it gives us hope and what it does once you've got faith, what it does and perhaps what these, what these Roman citizens and Christians struggling under real pressure can, can learn from that. Read with me. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. While he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. It's this beautiful story. And I love, I love the way that the gospel, Jesus, the good news, wanders along the beach and finds, just finds four guys living normal life. It's a beautiful piece for us to observe. The first thing that we see that the gospel is, and I want you to hang on to this, because it doesn't always feel like good news, and it didn't feel like the good, good news for the people living in Rome, I'm sure, that the gospel is good news. 
it's good news. It's not advice. It's not tidbits of information. It's news. You know, we live in a, an age post-truth, don't we? We've almost forgotten what news is like. This is news. So Mark's gospel, I'm going to say this and wait for the eyebrows to raise, see if everyone's listening. It's not the first gospel. There's other gospels. They're just not about Jesus. There was other stories written that were supposed to be good news. People would go around saying, I've got a gospel for you. I've got, I've got good news. So in particular, you can look back, the wars that went on in the Greek city-states. There, was, there were big wars going out in some distant land, and there were cities that would live, towns that would live in real fear. And they would have their life set to a certain rhythm because of the battle that was going on somewhere deep out at sea between the Greeks and whoever they were fighting were. And they'd have to live their life kind of on tenterhooks. They'd live it a certain way, like half panicked. Maybe they'd, they'd, not, they'd just not be relaxed the whole time. They'd be thinking any moment some, some army's going to come in and bulldoze us. And then the gospel would come. The good news of victory would come in. And they'd come in and tell the people, they'd say, it's great news. Great news. We've won the war. That's what the gospel is like. It's news. We've heard that this paradise that we have access to, that was shut off because of sin, has been made open to us through Christ again. It's news. So the people in that city, can you imagine the people receiving that news in that city? Everybody does a big, it's good news. And you look around and you perhaps shopkeepers that you've got who were just perhaps not living their life fully. They were just always thinking, well, this, you know, I'm, I'm not going to think too much about tomorrow. I can't plan for this. I can't plan for that. All of a sudden, they can plan their lives down a different course because of the news that they've heard. That is what the gospel is. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean that your life's not going to come under threat again. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have tragedy. It doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean that's, that life's not going to be tough. Don't mean you're not going to get ill. Don't mean you're not going to lose your job. But it means that somewhere a battle has been won that means that you can go, oh man, I don't have to worry about that. My eternal future is secure in Christ. That's the first thing that it is. Second thing that it is, is it's a game changer. Maybe we'll wrap up with this thought. It's a game changer. I love, I love in this little story mostly the thought of Zebedee. He's already got a funny name, I think Zebedee, but I just love the idea that as Jesus comes over, the disciples, you know, the people just, they drop everything, don't they? That's what, that's what the story is. They, they, they drop their nets and they run off and follow Jesus. I love that, you know, Zebedee doesn't go. I love the idea that he's just said, they're going, hey, what? What just happened? It's not that these people, it's not that these fishermen never fish again. You know, you half get that impression. They go off and follow Jesus and they put down their nets and they never pick up a fishing rod again. They, they do pick up fishing rods again. They're going to be out in the sea again. They're fishermen, but they will never fish the same way ever again. Peter, James, and John are never going to look at these nets and think wholly about the fact that they need fish to feed them, that they need fish, and that's the only thing going on in the world. Every time they pick up their nets, and they dunk their heads under the sea or they cast their nets in, they're going to remember the story of the gospel that changes things. This is what the gospel does for us. doesn't mean that you're all going to run off, go to Bible school, become vicars. Although if that happened, praise God, it would be an amazing thing. It would just be a wonderful thing. But it means that the things that we do every day, because we know that our eternal future is secure, because we know we've got hope in Christ, we will never do them the same way again. And as I say these words, I look round and go, but really? Because I live 
the same way so often. And that puts the challenge under our hearts. Do we know this? Do we know this story? Is this, is this a story that's like real for me? Mark writes this letter and he thinks, I think in the back of his mind, of these cowering Roman Christians. And he says, I need to, I need to be concise. I need to be clear. I need to blow them away with the truth about who God is. I need to be really clear that this man, Jesus, that they've got hope in is God. That this man, Jesus, is the way to peace with God, is the way to hope with God. 